It is a joy to hear your singing today. Um, John chapter 19, actually beginning in chapter 18, verse 28, and all the way down through chapter 19, verse 16, we see Jesus on trial. He's on trial before the Roman authorities. And this trial is specifically presided over by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Let me give you just a little bit of background to set the scene. The population in all of Palestine in Jesus' day was approximately 500,000 to 600,000 people. So roughly about the same size as Vermont or Louisville, Kentucky, um, or Atlanta today. About 18,000 of those residents were clergy. They were priests and Levites. And Jerusalem was a city of about 55,000 people, um, normally at least. But during the religious feasts and festivals where people would travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, the population could climb as high as 180,000. So imagine the city of Springfield or Dublin, Ohio, more than tripling in size for a week during the holidays. And some people come to town and they eat too many latkes and they get sick. And others drink too much. And we all know what happens when that happens. But there's also family issues that can come up in a crowded city with a bunch of tourists in town. There's domestic disturbances. There are disputes between the locals and the out-of-towners. And and there's just a general tension in the city. This is the backdrop of Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Pilate's job as the Roman governor is to enforce what was known as the the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Really throughout the entire region, he was to enforce that using Roman soldiers. And we all know that peace can be pretty difficult to enforce sometimes, especially when there's political tension in the air. Well, for their part, the religious leaders in the city... um, the leaders, religious leaders of the people of Israel, they were not interested in a violent overthrow of the government. They desperately wanted to maintain the status quo so that they could protect their own positions of power and authority. But Jesus was seen as a threat to all of this because, as they had said, to use their phrase, the whole world had gone after him. The Jewish leaders were concerned, and so was Pilate, actually, to a certain extent. They were concerned that Jesus would start a revolution, that the people would abandon them and follow him instead. But what it really boiled down to is they didn't want to see people stop paying their tithes to the temple. But after Pilate examined Jesus in this trial here in um, chapters 18 and 19, after he examined Jesus, he decided he wasn't really a threat to him at all. And he declared him innocent three times as he tried really to placate the Jews, yet also release Jesus. 
And so on the surface of these verses, this entire passage, this trial, this is a contest between Jew and Gentile, between the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. Which one of them will remain in power? But under the surface, what we are really seeing is Psalm chapter 2 coming to fruition. Psalm 2 opens like this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And while the Jews and the Romans are raging against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus, the next verse in Psalm 2 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So let's read this passage of Scripture together. John chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, and then we're really just going to look at verses 12 to 16 this morning. But I want to read beginning in the first verse chapter 19 so that we remember the context. John 19, 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pray with me again. Father, we are a needy people. I pray that you'd give us what we need today. We need to know Christ and him crucified. We need to know Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give that to us today. Help us to see these things and understand. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been sitting here for weeks as we've been working through the gospel according to John, one of the questions that you might have is, why are we taking so long? Why are we taking so long to get to the crucifixion? Well, the easy answer to that is because John spends about a, about a quarter of his book almost on the final week of Jesus' life. Palm Sunday, as we call it now. Um, it happened all the way back in chapter 12. And yet in real time, it was only about five days prior, five days before what we read here. But in reality, we're, we're taking so long to get there because not only did John give us so much of Jesus' teaching in the, in the previous passages, the previous chapters, the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, not only did he give us so much of Jesus' teaching, but he's, he's also now giving us a great deal of insight into the heart of man as these trials, as the arrest, and then these trials take place. First before Annas, the real kind of behind-the-scenes Jewish high priest, then Caiaphas, the official high priest, which John actually skips over, and then now Pilate, the Roman governor. The civil authorities, civic authorities. As we work through these trials, especially today as we finish this Roman trial here in verses 12 to 16, we're going to be able to see three truths about sinful men that when confronted by the truth that we can see. Three truths about sinful men when confronted by the truth, even in these just few verses here. Let me give you these three truths right now, and then we're going to go through them one by one. The first thing that we can see is fear. Fear. Then surrender, and then rejection. Fear, surrender, and rejection. So we'll start with fear. Look again at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, fear can be either good or bad, right? Show me a man who says he's afraid of nothing, and I'll, I'll show you either a fool or somebody who's lying, right? Everybody's afraid of something. We could say it just a little bit differently. There's an unhealthy fear and a healthy fear. So you can have an unhealthy fear of flying. It might even be crippling, like it was for B.A. Baracus in the A-team. Remember? It could even be crippling, a crippling fear of flying. Or you could have a healthy fear of flying, which is really a, a respect for gravity, a respect for the, the limits of the flying machine. Well, what we see here is an unhealthy fear in Pilate. It's because it's the fear of man. John has really already brought this up. Just, just look back at verse 8. John 19, verse 8. He, he makes this comment. John does. He says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate's been afraid all along. John is just pointing this out to us. His fear is actually increasing. Pilate's fear of man runs really deep, and it's controlling his decisions. Pilate is a coward. He's afraid of Jesus, 
But not really because of Jesus' power or authority, and certainly not because of his divine nature. He's afraid of what dealing with Jesus will do to his career. He's afraid of Jesus. This man who seems to have gotten the entire city in an uproar, and yet even still, he's afraid of this man who claims to be the Son of God. But he's also afraid of the angry mob. But he's even more afraid of of Caesar and what Caesar will do to him if this angry mob gets out of control. And yet he's also afraid of this mob, these Jews who have steadfastly and vigorously opposed his attempts to set Jesus free. Pilate wants all of this to end. He just wants all of this to go away. He wants Jesus to be taken off his hands. And we can see his fear in his his repeated attempts to release Jesus, declaring him innocent three times, yet also having him flogged, whipped by brutal soldiers who also mocked the king of the Jews. From the moment that Jesus told Pilate that that any authority that he happened to have was given to him by God, from the time Jesus spoke of God's authority over Pilate, from then on, the governor sought to release Jesus. Yet again, for all of his disdain for the Jewish people, and Pilate really looked down upon the Jews, he feared their opposition to his judgments. This is because in the end, Pilate was still mostly afraid of Caesar's wrath. He was afraid of being recalled to Rome, of losing his job, but not just losing his job, possibly losing his life. This is what the fear of man does to us. It makes us afraid of everything. Instead of doing the right thing, even the unpopular thing, we look at all of the options and see which thing hurts us the least. Which thing will cause my standing among the people around me not to be hurt? This fear is the only explanation for Pilate's failure to release Jesus after declaring him innocent three times. So let's continue to consider Pilate for just a moment. We have to remember that as the Roman governor, he rules, he uh, governs the people as the official representative of Rome, the Roman emperor, the Caesar. He has Roman soldiers at his disposal. But he's also serving a particular Caesar who is particularly suspicious of disloyal servants. Essentially, he can do, Pilate can do whatever he wants as long as he is completely and utterly loyal to his emperor. But also consider Jesus standing there before the people, still wearing a twisted crown of thorns, probably jammed down onto his head so that it's bleeding, wearing a purple robe. He's been flogged, whipped with leather straps with pieces of glass and metal in it. So he's bleeding. He's been struck several times. He's bruised. He's standing there. And so consider Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Knowing that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus in this scene is setting an example here. Or more specifically, he's, he's paving the way for us to live in the fear of God that enables us to resist this kind of temptation to save our own skin. That's what Pilate is doing. Jesus gives us the ability to resist the temptation to the kind of worldly compromise and, and sin that we see Pilate just trapped in here and digging himself in deeper, really. It is in fearing God that Christians are able to resist the fear of man so that we don't fail to hold fast to the truth and so that we don't compromise our conduct before the world. And so as we compare Pilate and Jesus in these verses, one who lives in the fear of man and the other who is completely obedient to his father to the point of death, we need to see the differences not just in their actions but in their attitudes. Jesus' attitude is one of confidence, confidence in his father's sovereignty. Just look back at verse 11. When he had spoken last, Jesus answers Pilate, And he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus trusts fully in God's sovereign control over all of the events that he is going through. The the hearts of, of kings and governors. He trusts fully in God's sovereign control over the hearts of Pharisees, priests, Levites, and even his disciples. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but it's been a while since Peter and John have been mentioned. They've been following at a distance, but where are the others? Judas is gone. The others aren't to be found either. His own disciples, whom he has given his life, about to give his life for. He's given the last three years to disciple them, to teach them, to be their master and rabbi. They split. And yet he is still trusting in God's sovereign control. Not only does Jesus understand that Pilate is accountable to Rome, even Pilate understands that, but Jesus understands that he is really accountable to God. And he can only do to Jesus what the Father in heaven permits him to do. Jesus knows that God's will will be done. And so he has entrusted himself to the Father. Peter will later describe Jesus' frame of mind like this as he describes this scene. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to the righteous judge. Think of Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? 
This is what they did, Daniel and his friends. This is what they understood when they were carried off into captivity in Babylon hundreds of years before this. So the Old Testament book of Daniel records the account of essentially the life of Daniel. And one of the ways in which God used Daniel was in prophetically interpreting the Babylonian emperor, Nebuchadnezzar. He prophetically interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And because Daniel was able to do this, he was promoted to a position of authority in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And in his interpretation of his dream, Daniel had made a statement, a prophetic statement. It's Daniel chapter 2, verse 24, or 44. This is his prophecy. Just listen to this statement. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And Daniel and his three friends, they trusted in the God of that statement, the God whose kingdom shall stand forever. And they continued to entrust themselves to the righteous judge, the same righteous judge that Peter was referring to when he said that, that Jesus continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. And so I want to just actually turn to Daniel chapter 3. I want you to listen to what happens to them as they entrust themselves to the righteous judge. Let me me just read the last verse of chapter 2 for a little bit of context. Daniel chapter 2 verse 49 says, Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. So these were high officials at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's government. Then in chapter 3, I want to read just verses 8 to 18. I want you to see what happens to those who have entrusted themselves to the righteous judge. So Daniel chapter 3 verse 8 says this, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the fairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, any kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is what it means to fear God and not man. Just stop right there in the story. They don't know if they're going to be delivered or not. And regardless, they are not going to bow down to these false gods. This is what it means to fear God and not man. They stood firm in the truth, knowing that God would deliver them one way or another. At some point, they're coming out of that fiery furnace even if it means that they're ashes when they do, even if it means that they'll be standing before the presence of God himself. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, were burned at the stake at Oxford on October 16, 1555, for holding fast to the Protestant faith. And they were delivered from the fire when they entered into glory. They were delivered from the fire when their bodies were consumed. The first and foremost way to avoid the fear of man is to truly, genuinely trust in the Lord who is able to save to the uttermost those who call upon him in faith. i say it again. The first and foremost way to avoid the fear of man is to trust truly in the Lord who is able to save to the uttermost those who will draw near to him in faith, who will believe in him, who will call upon his name. But you know what? It can't stop there. Because even Christians struggle with the fear of man, right? I know, I know pastors struggle with the fear of man. And so another way to avoid the fear of man is to become knowledgeable, to become fluent in the teachings of God's scriptures, to know what God has promised, to understand his commands and his promises to us. James Montgomery Boyce, um, I've quoted him a few times, he was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He said this, to want to do the right thing is not enough. We must know what the right thing is. And there is no way to know that apart from God's specific revelation of his standards in the Bible. During all of this, there were times when Jesus remained silent because he knew that all of these events, not the least of which was his own suffering, he knew that all of these events were God's revealed will and therefore they, they were the fulfillment of Scripture. 
Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that that these things must soon take place. He knew that, that Pilate couldn't release him no matter how badly Pilate wanted to release him. Jesus knew that he must go to the cross. He knew, for example, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. He knew that that was about him. He knew that that was prophesying all of this. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He understood these things. He understood that he would bear in his body the transgression of us all. That he would be bruised for our iniquities. He knew this. Likewise, as his disciples, as Christians, those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we've been given certain commands and promises that we need to know and remember. So, for example, the Great Commission, probably the one that sticks in our minds the most, part of that says this. It's at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he gives a promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In the Great Commission, he has called us to proclaim the truth of the good news. And he has also called us to live lives of holiness in obedience to his word. And you can't obey God's word if you don't know God's word, right? I used to know a man when I lived in Illinois. And every time we would talk theology or the Bible, he would complain that he didn't, he didn't really know anything about the Bible because he didn't grow up in church. Nobody had ever really taught him about the Bible. And yet he'd been part of a specific church, that specific church, for 20 years. Take some responsibility, man. Take up your mat and go home and read your Bible. Or better yet, Jesus said that making disciples is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Beloved, this is what, this is what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. This is why we have Sunday school, for example. See, the, the other Sunday school classes, um, the adult Sunday school class, the kids' Sunday school classes are, are designed not to take the place of your teaching your own kids God's word, but just to come alongside just to reinforce and and help you teach your own kids so that when you and they face the temptation to fear man rather than God, you will know for certain the commands and promises of the word of God. You need to know the commands and the promises of God's word so that we may stand firm. We need to know God's word. And then really the third way to overcome the fear of man is to instead live in the fear of God. And that is to surrender your will to the will of God. This was Pilate's great failure here. He believed in the power of the gods, lowercase g. We know this because it says that he was even more afraid when he heard that Jesus was making himself out to be the son of God. Yet Pilate could not do the right thing. Pilate did not know God. He did not know Yahweh. 
And so when, when, when they accused Jesus of making himself out to be the son of God, Pilate looked at him like all of the other Roman or Greek gods. Is, is this guy like Hercules? Is this guy like Zeus? Is he kind of part man, part God? I just had him whipped. What's he going to do to me? He's fearing the man, Jesus, not even knowing who he is. Yet Pilate couldn't do the right thing, even though he was afraid of him. He couldn't bring himself to go against the wrath of this angry mob and release the innocent man. Meanwhile, Jesus had prayed earlier in that same evening. In Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus prayed this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prays to his Father. This kind of surrendering to, the, to God's will is what Paul would later instruct the church in Romans chapter 8. Just turn over there for a minute. Romans chapter 8. Paul would spend time more than once in Roman prisons. Once in the famous Mamertine prison, which was basically a hole in the ground. But he would write, even before he would get to Rome, even before he would be arrested and brought into um, prison there, he writes this to the church in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We surrender our wills to the will of God because the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory to come when we finally enter into our rest. When our hope becomes sight, when our hope becomes realized, when we see our Savior face to face. Back to this scene in John chapter 19. 
The Jews are picking up on Pilate's fear of man. And they will exploit it here. Because that's what sinners do. So pick it up in the middle of verse 12. The Jews cry out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is what selfish manipulators do. That's what they're doing. They're manipulating Pilate's fear. A selfish manipulator will see that they're able to get their own way and they're going to exploit your weaknesses, even your fear of man, in order to please themselves. So, a couple of questions. Husbands, do you do this to your wives? Do you see their fears and exploit them for your own purposes? Or wives, do you do this to your husbands? Do you do this to your family? Maybe extended family? Do you do this to fellow church members? Friends? Do you manipulate out of selfishness in order to get your own way? I'm going to leave that for your own consciences to deal with if that's the case. I have no doubt that Pilate was afraid that these prominent Jewish leaders would send their complaints to Rome, that it would cause him to get into trouble with the emperor. And so Pilate's fear of man finally here consumes him, and he moves into the judgment phase of the trial. So this leads to the second reaction of sinful men when confronted by the truth. It is either fear or now surrender. Surrender. Verses 13 and 14. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. It's almost as if Pilate's decision was made for him by this shouting mob. John explains when he said, When Pilate heard these words, when he, when he saw political threat he acted or reacted and we know that that in the coming announcement we know what the verdict is going to be right we know that Jesus is about to be sent to the cross in this coming announcement this coming verdict is not rooted in the authority of Jerusalem it's not rooted in uh, the authority of Rome the coming announcement is rooted in the authority of heaven. In fact, the throne room of God himself. This is his perfect and eternal covenant of redemption. And John even gives us a little bit of a play on words to illustrate just exactly who's in charge here. If you remember Jesus' first trial back in chapter 18, verses 19 to 24, John was intentionally vague about just exactly who the high priest was because he wanted to illustrate that Jesus is, in fact, the true high priest. Remember that? It's Annas, but Annas isn't really the high priest. The high priest is really Caiaphas, so he just calls him the high priest. And he does that sort of so that we understand who is he talking about? Oh, Jesus is the real high priest. Jesus is really in charge. He does something similar here. Now, in the English translations, our translators have sort of clarified it for us. Um, but as this is written in Greek, 
um, we're actually not sure who is seated on the judgment seat. Pilate could be seated, as it seems to indicate in English, but it also could be that Pilate brought Jesus out and sat him upon the judgment seat. Now, in reality, it probably was Pilate who it was himself sitting there. It would be weird to have him sit Jesus on the judgment seat. That's the, um, the judge's bench, so to speak. It would be weird to put Jesus there. But John writes it this way so that we can remember who really is the judge. In ultimate reality, Jesus is sitting in judgment over these entire proceedings. So we know, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That means that Pilate himself would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That means that Annas... The high priest behind the high priest will stand before the judgment seat himself. That means that Caiaphas, the official high priest, will stand before the judgment seat himself, as would the Roman soldiers who twisted that crown of thorns and shoved it onto his head, as will the ones who slapped him and hit him and mocked him, as will the ones who bowed down pretending to worship, as will the preacher who gives an account for those under his charge, as will each of us, whether good or evil. And while John notes here that he mentions a time and he mentions a place of these events, the conclusion of Jesus' Roman trial, he's actually painting a picture. Pilate is surrendering to the mob's demands, while at the same time he's, he's still mocking them. But John's word picture is of Jesus sitting on the throne, the judgment seat, before the people, while Pilate, the perfect representative of this world, proclaims, Behold your king. The irony in John's writing is rich. Just as the faithless high priest Caiaphas unknowingly confirmed that that Jesus himself would be the the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. Back in chapter 11 when he had said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So now this faithless king, the, the, the king of this world, the representative of the king, of the emperor, this faithless man, Pilate, proclaims that the bruised and bloodied Jesus is actually the king of kings. Behold, Your king, he says. But if Pilate's proclamation was an ironic surrender to his own fear of man, the response of the Jews now brought this entire scene to the tragic depths as they reject and condemn the Christ, their Savior. This is the third and final reaction of sinful men when confronted by the truth. Rejection. Rejection. Verse 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Their hearts are completely 
hardened at this point. They are emphatic. They are persistent in their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Two times they shout, away with him, away with him. It's as if they're saying, we don't care who he is. And Pilate makes this one kind of half-hearted final appeal. Shall I crucify your king? He's still mocking. He's still mocking, of course, Jesus and the people. But their answer is that they, in their answer, they complete their rejection. We have no king but Caesar. Unwittingly, Pilate has given them chance after chance after chance after chance to repent. Pilate isn't really doing that on purpose, but God is using him to seal their own fate, giving them chance after chance after chance to repent, but they are in love with the God of this world. He is their master. We have no king but Caesar. In rejecting Jesus, we cannot avoid losing our souls. When we reject Jesus, we lose our souls. Those who hear and reject the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, they're like these Jews who have refused to humble themselves before God's throne of mercy and instead have committed themselves to a life of increasing and continued darkness. That's what's happening here. Jesus had said this to, even to one of them, Nicodemus, back in chapter 3. He had said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The judgment's been given all the way back in chapter three. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is the moment right here, right at the end of verse 15 of John chapter 19. This is the moment that the entire Bible has been preparing us for. All the way back from the fall of man, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, throughout all of the Old Testament revelation, God has been leading his people to the day when he would send his son as a savior and through him bring about the salvation once and for all time of those who will trust in him. Throughout all of John's gospel, throughout all of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of the Son of God, God's people have been led to this moment. Shall I crucify your king? this point, you need to understand that there are only two responses to this man, Jesus Christ. There's only two responses. One is away with him, away with him, or repentance and belief. So here's the promise. Acts chapter 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to the end of verse 15 and we see come to, come to pass the promise that we had seen all the way back in chapter one. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Father, I am so thankful that verse 12 comes after verse 11. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Father, we rejoice that we have been born, those of us who have trusted in you have been born of God. Father, it is my prayer that if there are any here who have not yet trusted, that they would not reject Jesus, but would believe As we approach the table, Lord, it is my prayer that we would understand and proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. That we would be strengthened as we taste the bread and drink of the cup. That we would be strengthened by his promises. By the promises of God to his people. Father, we thank you and we rejoice and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.